Hello and welcome to Paul Martin's Audiobooks and Ideas. I'm talking today about the early church fathers. They are very highly respected in the Catholic and Orthodox churches, and the Catholic and Orthodox apologists frequently appeal to the church fathers to say that this is what the early church believed. Protestants even occasionally quote from them. Did the early church fathers teach Eastern Orthodoxy or Catholicism or Protestantism or something else? The answer is a lot more complicated than people realise. The early church fathers were 51 men who lived from the late 1st century until the 8th century. The last one being John of Damascus, who wrote when the Muslims had conquered the Middle East. So it covers many centuries, and some of the things the Church Fathers taught, some of them taught, affirm Eastern Orthodox beliefs, some of them affirm Catholic beliefs, some of them affirm Protestant beliefs, and some of them affirm heretical beliefs. And mostly, it's a complicated mishmash of many different beliefs. For example, Jerome rejected the Apocrypha as spurious, and he held to the same canon that Protestants held to. So, as far as the canon was concerned, he was Protestant. As far as the perpetual virginity of Mary was concerned, he was Catholic. He taught that she never lost her virginity. So I'm talking today about the contradictory beliefs of the Church Fathers. Melito of Sardis, about 180 AD, omitted Esther from his Bible, and that's mentioned in Eusebius Church History, 426. Tertullian, in his On the Apparel of Women, 1 verse 3, said Enoch should be part of Scripture. And the Ascension of Isaiah, Tertullian believed should be Scripture, in his On Patience, section 14. Oregon, in around 240 AD, included Esther and the letter of Jeremiah, but he omitted the twelve minor prophets, although some historians think that might have been by accident. Cyril of Jerusalem in 340 AD omitted revelation as scripture. He also omitted wisdom and Sirach in his catechetical lectures, uh, chapter 4 verses 33 to 37. Julius Africanus in the late first to early second, uh, sorry, late second to early third century, rejected the extra additions to Daniel as spurious and apocryphal, in his letters of Africanus to Oregon, and Hilary of Poitiers included Baruch, Tobit, and Judith as scripture. Amphilochius omitted Baruch, the letter of Jeremiah, but he accepted Esther. Gregory of Nazianzus omitted Esther Baruch and the letter of Jeremiah. Epiphanius questioned wisdom and Sirach as not scripture in his Against Judaism, 
but he included them in on weights and measures, so the church fathers sometimes flip-flopped on what they believed. Jerome, as I said before, rejected all of the Apocrypha as spurious and not scripture in his introductions in the Latin Vulgate, which was the late 4th century. He said they have truth mixed with error, but they were to be read in church for edification. Rufinus in 400 AD, in his symbol of the apostles, said the Apocrypha was read in the church, but was not appealed to for confirmation of doctrine. And Eusebius Pamphilius, who died in 339 AD, in his church history 6136, said that disputed canonical books included wisdom, Sirach, Hebrews, Barnabas, Jude and Clement. Augustine, in his City of God, said wisdom was not written by Solomon, chapter 17, verse 20, and Jews rejected Judith, chapter 18, verse 26, and Sirach as scripture. The epistle of Barnabas, which is, dates from about 80 to 135 AD, calls Enoch scripture. Clement of Alexandria, in the second century, quotes Enoch, uh, Athenagoras, uh, in his plea for Christians, calls Enoch divinely inspired. Plea for Christians, chapter 24. John Chrysostom, who died in about 407 AD, called Enoch a blasphemous fable. That's in his homily 6 on Genesis. Clement of Alexandria, the 2nd century, believed in the assumption of Moses, an apocryphal book. And Justin Martyr believed in the ascension of Isaiah, an apocryphal book, in his dialogue with Trypho, 150. That was around 150 AD. The Apostolic Canons gives a Bible book list. This is about 400 AD. In its Canon 85, it lists Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, uh, 1 to 4 Kings, that actually means 1 and 2 Kings and 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther or Judith in some manuscripts, 1 to 3 Maccabees, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, 12 Minor Prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel and Daniel. Besides that, they say Sirach is recommended for teaching young people. And the New Testament, they had the four Gospels, Acts, the 14 Pauline letters, 1 and 2 Peter, 1 and 3 John, sorry, 1 to 3 John, James, Jude, 1 and 2 Clement, and the Constitutions of Clement. But they omitted Tobit, Baruch, Wisdom, Sirach, and Revelation. So we see they had contradictory beliefs on the canon of Scripture, and they had contradictory beliefs on other things. For example, Jerome, as I mentioned, believed strongly in the perpetual virginity of uh, Mary, and many of the church fathers believed Mary was sinless. But many of the church fathers believed she was a sinner. And Tertullian, about 200 AD, in his book On the Flesh of Christ, chapter 7, quoted Matthew 12:48. What are the mother and brothers to me? 
to say that Jesus was rebuking Mary for her unbelief. And he said Mary was a symbol of the unbelieving synagogue. Oregon, in the third century, in his homilies on Luke, chapter 17, verses 6 to 7, quoted Luke 2.35. He said, a sword shall pierce your heart. And he said she, Mary, would be pierced by the sword of unbelief and doubt and that Jesus had died for her sins. Basil the Great, who died in 379 AD, in his letters 260 verse 9, said the sword that pierced Mary's heart was that of doubt. John Chrysostom, in the early 5th century, in his homily, chapter 44 verse 3, said Mary was vain, glorious and arrogant in John chapter 2 when Jesus rebuked her, for in fact, that which she had essayed to do was of superfluous vanity in that she wanted to show the people that she had power and authority over her son, imagining not as yet anything great concerning him, whence also her unseasonable approach. And that's in his homilies on Matthew 44 verse 3. And he said that Jesus wanted to heal Mary's vain glory. Hilary of Poitiers, who died in 367 AD, in his Tractatus in Psalm 118 on Luke 2.35, said, If this virgin, made capable of conceiving God, will encounter the severity of this judgment, who will dare to escape? And Fulgentius of Rusby, who died in 533 AD, in his Epistula, chapter 17, verse 13, said Mary was conceived in iniquity in accordance with human practice. And the Immaculate Conception of Mary didn't even become a Catholic dogma until 1854, many centuries after these uh, church fathers. Even Thomas Aquinas, who lived in the 1200s, flip-flopped on the issue. Was Mary sinless? Well, the Bible says all have sinned, Romans 3.23. And Mary said God was her saviour, Luke chapter 1, verse 47. And Jesus was God and Jesus was perfect. So anyone who rebuked Jesus was committing a sin. And Luke chapter 2, verse 48, Mary rebuked Jesus. She said, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. And Jesus corrected her and said, Do you not know that I must go about my father's business? And then we have divinization, Athanasius, in the 4th century, on the Incarnation, chapter 54, verse 3, said, God became man that man might become God. The promise to become like God was a lie told by the serpent to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3, 4 and 5. Isaiah 42, verse 8 says, I am Yahweh, that is my name, and my glory will I not give to another. But Catholics affirm what Athanasius said. They call it divinization. The Orthodox call it theosis. 
it's a dangerous and uh, can lead to a lot of heresy in my opinion. Then we have other contradictions among the church fathers. Arnobius, who lived about 303 AD, his Apology of Christianity against the Heathen, 3501 to 3515, in Book 2, Paragraph 61, taught annihilationism rather than eternal torment in hell. And that's considered heresy by Catholics and Orthodox, yet he is one of their church fathers. Ignatius of Antioch, who lived in the early 2nd century, died about 107 AD. In his Epistle to the Magnesians, chapter 10, he said, Let us not therefore be insensible to his kindness, for were he to reward us according to our works, we should cease to be. So Ignatius was also teaching annihilationism. Irenaeus of Lyons, about 180 AD, in his Against Heresies, Book 2, Chapter 34, taught annihilationism. And Justin Martyr, about 150 AD, in his Dialogue with Trypho, Chapter 5, said the soul is not immortal. That is, he said, saved souls get eternal life, but the uh, sinful ones are annihilated. Oregon of Alexandria in 253 AD on the First Principles, Book 1, Chapter 6, taught universalism, salvation for all. And also Book 3, Chapter 5, Section 7. Gregory of Nyssa, a greatly respected church father, especially by the Eastern Orthodox Church, in his The Great Catechism, Chapter 26, taught that all humanity would be saved, even Satan. He believed that Satan and his demons would all be saved in the end and receive the divine nature, divinization, theosis. Wow. Now, many early Christians rejected eternal torment, as noted by... Um, Tertullian on the resurrection of the flesh um, but there were others who acknowledged eternal torment and they noted that many others did not so those who did believe in eternal torment included Tertullian on the resurrection of the flesh Augustine in his Enchiridion and Jerome in his commentary on Jonah chapter 3 and while these three acknowledged eternal torment, they noted that many others did not. And then we have the issue of the millennium, the 1,000-year period that's spoken about in the highly symbolic book of Revelation, chapter 20. Justin Martyr, who lived in 150 AD in his dialogue with Trypho, chapter 8, held to the pre-millennial view. But he acknowledged that many other Christians held to very different interpretations of this millennium. His quote, And many who belong to the pure and pious faith and are true Christians think otherwise. Now this is a very telling comment. Here was Justin Martyr, a man who lived 
about one or two generations after the death of the last apostle. And he acknowledged that they weren't all one in their, in every little doctrine, but they had different interpretations of scripture, but they recognised one another as Christians. And that sounds a lot more like the Protestant denominations than the Catholic or Orthodox churches. So what can we say in conclusion about these contradictory beliefs of the Church Fathers? Well, it debunks the notion of a monolithic Church whose traditions support the contradictory claims of apostolic origin made by Oriental Orthodox, Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox Churches. If one accepts the things the Church Fathers said that support their traditions, what do they do with the things that contradict their teachings? Catholic and Orthodox apologists regularly mock and ridicule Protestants for not all agreeing on the exact same doctrines and having many denominations, yet the early Church and the Church Fathers had no such unity either. Protestants appeal to anything the Church Fathers said that agrees with their theology, and Catholic and Orthodox apologists will ridicule them for that. But Catholic and, and Orthodox do the exact same thing, and they ignore whatever contradicts their current theology. So when I've pointed out to Catholics, did you know that Arnobius believed in annihilationism? And did you know that Tertullian believed in the Book of Enoch? They say, oh, well, we don't have to accept everything they taught. Well, they're applying a standard to Protestants that they do not apply to themselves. So how should evangelical Protestants like us view the Church Fathers? Well, we should recognise they were only 51 men that supposedly represented all of Christendom for the first 750 years of our history. They actually didn't. There were iconoclasts and novationists, early Protestants, Montanists, who rejected a lot of the teachings of the Church Fathers and of the Catholic and Orthodox Churches. So these 51 men are only a small proportion of the views that were out there. Their writings are a contradictory mishmash of truths and heresies. Scripture says, test all things, hold on to what is good. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 21. And 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 9 says, For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. So we don't know everything perfectly. The early church fathers didn't know everything perfectly. We have to measure whatever they said against the scripture. And if they say something that contradicts scripture, we should reject it. If they say something that affirms it, we can affirm it. Thank you for listening and God bless you.